23. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Acts 23. We'll be reading the entire chapter. The text reads like this. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were, you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took them and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune, stood, uh, the, the tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. 
Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, to, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And also provided mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. The man, who, who, the man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and, des and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was dis disclosed to me, that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading this letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that it was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. John Patton or Peyton, the Scottish missionary, of the 19th century was once uh, speaking about the call that God had placed on his life. He believed that God had called him to reach the cannibals of the New Hebride Islands for Jesus. And not long before, two missionaries themselves had gone to the New Hebrides and they had been clubbed and cooked and eaten. And so as Patton was pouring out his heart and pitching his vision on this particular night, a, a Mr. Dixon cried out, but you'll be eaten by cannibals, he said. And Patton said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And if I can but live and die serving our Lord Jesus, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Mic drop moment. How could anyone be that courageous? Well, Patton actually tells us in his autobiography, he wrote these words. He said, my enemies, the cannibals on the New Hebride Islands, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against me. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there. 
fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt, listen to this, immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. We continue our series in the book of Acts tonight, and the point of our passage is this. God is able to keep you. God is able to keep you. Now, at this point in Acts, Paul had reached Jerusalem. He'd been longing to get to Jerusalem. He had this financial gift that he wanted to give to this impoverished church there. But soon after he arrived in Jerusalem, he was accosted in the temple by some men who had misunderstood his message. They saw him there in the temple and they cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which he, which he didn't. But the commotion was such that the Roman tribune had to get involved. Do you remember the tribune was a, a soldier over 1,000 other soldiers? And Paul made a, a speech to the mob after the tribune had come and, and calmed everyone down. But the speech ended with the mob crying out, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so the tribune ordered that Paul be flogged in order for him to find out what he had done. But just in the nick of time, Paul reminded him that he was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens, you remember back then, could not be punished or flogged without a fair hearing or without a trial. Nevertheless, we read in Acts 22, verse 30. If you have your Bible open, do look at Acts 22, verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And so the tribune wanted to know, what is the beef with this man, so that he could know what to do with him. And despite the dangers, and despite the toils and the snares in Acts Chapter 23, the point is, God is able to keep you. Number one, in his will. And number two, by his providence. And before we get into it, I want to say, there is a wonderful connection between our passage this evening here in Acts and the passage we were thinking about only this morning, I said this morning that since the glow of eternity is on our faces, we can put one foot in front of the other. But Acts 23 tells us that the, that, that God is the one who keeps us in the meantime. As we are putting one step in front of the other, God is able to keep us. And he's able to preserve us and he's able 
to strengthen us and uphold us as we put one step in front of the other to glory. And so may this messaging complete that encouragement that I pray you received this morning as we looked in the book of Colossians. God is able to keep you, number one, in his will. Now, since Acts chapter 15, we have known what God's will was for Paul's life. You remember Jesus had said, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And in our passage tonight, Jesus underscores that calling on his life. There in verse 11 of Acts 23, amid all of the danger, when he says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus had called this once terrorist to be a walking, talking billboard of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet in this moment, you realize God's wills for Paul's life looked like it was in great danger. Everyone and everything was against him. The Sadducees were against him. They were the wealthy aristocrats of the day. And the Pharisees were against him. They shaped all of religious life back then with all of their applications of tradition and Torah and etc. and so on. And the chief priests were against him who presided over the temple there in Jerusalem. And the elders were against him as well. He was only one sentence into the defense of himself when he was punched in the mouth. In verse 10, a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees became so intense that the tribune had to whisk Paul away lest he be torn limb from limb. And then in verse 12, the Jews made a plot that they wouldn't eat or or drink until they'd killed Paul. So in other words, either we die or Paul dies. And then in verse 15, they plan an ambush where they ask the tribune to have give them more time with Paul. And the Jews would intercept and murder Paul as he was on their way. Paul was outnumbered. Paul was outmanned. Paul, uh, Paul was out-resourced. And so from a human point of view, Paul was the very picture of vulnerability and helplessness. But from a divine point of view, he was the most secure man in the world. Why? Because his God was able to keep him in his will. He was immortal until God's plan had been completed. Now, under the next heading, we're going to lift up the bonnet of all of this, and we're going to see exactly how God kept Paul in his will. But before we get there, I want to encourage us with this. Friends, God is able to keep you, too, in his will for your life. No matter what you are facing, no matter who you are facing, God is able to keep you. In his will for your life. And when you hear those words, God's will for your life, I wonder what comes to mind. It might be the question, what is God's will for my life? What is God willed for my life? Who will I marry? Where should I study? What job should I get? And on, on, and on. And we might think to ourselves, well, Paul was told what God's will 
for his life was there in chapter 9 and here in chapter 23. I wish God would tell me what his will for my life is. I was at a conference once and during the Q&A time, someone grabbed the microphone and asked the main speaker. He said, I pray about which breakfast cereal I should eat every morning. I ask God to pick out the exact brand. Is that right? Is that normal? And I hope you would answer the question, no, you muppets, sit down and eat your cornflakes. <laughs> but friend, I have good news for you tonight. And the good news is this, I know what God's will for your life is. He's told me. And here it is. I hope you're ready. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. As someone said, not your location, not your vocation, but your sanctification. That is God's will for your life, for you to look and for you to smell more like Jesus. For you to be more set apart to God and holy unto Him. And who you marry and where you work or where you study or all of those things. What brand of cereal you eat in the morning. They're just the details. And God cares about the details. But His overriding big picture will for your life is that you would be made more like Jesus Christ. More holy, more set apart to God. Now we said this morning, didn't we, that God sees us as holy because we've been justified by faith in Christ. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's true right now. But friends, as we live the Christian life, the call is for us to become more in practice what we already are in God's sight. For us to grow into the holiness that is already ours because of the gospel of Jesus. And that's why God commands you to Throw yourself into the life of a local church where there is preaching in the pulpit and prayer in the pew. And to follow and yes, even to submit to qualified godly elders who love you and are praying for you and are keeping watch over your soul. And for us to confess our sins to one another and for us to warn those who are going astray in a spirit of gentleness and grace. And I hope you realize, friends, that those commands were not just plucked out of heaven randomly and thrown into the Bible for no reason. No, no, no. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit in order for you to become more holy and more like our risen Redeemer. And you know, friend, the reality is that God is able to keep you and God is able to keep us in that very process of our sanctification. And that we are immortal until we are as sanctified as God would have us be this side of heaven. And no power of hell, no scheme of man 
can ever pluck me from his hand. For I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. He will keep you. And he will uphold you. And he will strengthen you. And he will help you. And that soul, though all hell does endeavor to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And when evildoers assail you to eat up your flesh, your adversaries and foes, it will be they who stumble and fall. And when you pass through the waters, he will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Because God is able to keep you in his will for your life. And it's true that the more holy you become, the more under attack you will become as well. But God is able to keep you. And he will not fail you. And he will not fall asleep on you nor slumber. But he will fulfill all his purposes for you in Jesus Christ. And so friend, make holiness your top priority. If holiness is God's will for your life, don't fight it. And if the blood of Jesus has made you holy, then be holy and pursue holiness by his grace toward you. Why would you squander what is yours in the upward call of God in Jesus Christ? It's not for God to approve you, but it's because God has already approved you in the Lord Jesus. God is able to keep you, number one, in his will, but second, by his providence. God's providence is how God keeps us in his will. So the question is, what is God's providence? Listen to these words from the Belgic Confession of 1561. The writers there say this, we believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, will call her in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Or listen to this from the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable just means unchanging counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And you all thought that you had a wordy preacher. There you go. So, so where is God's providence in Acts chapter 23? Well, after the tribune rescued Paul from the violence of the religious establishment, Paul's nephew just sort of appears, as it were, from out of nowhere. Uh, up until this point in the book of Acts, we didn't even know that Paul had a sister, uh, never mind a nephew, but again, out of seemingly nowhere, he's in the right place and at the right time to hear all about this plot 
on Paul's life. And after Paul's nephew had brought that report to the tribune, the tribune sends Paul first to Antipatris and then on to Caesarea with 12 times the number of soldiers than his enemies. Over 400 soldiers surrounding him in the face of his enemies. God kept Paul by his providence and God will keep you by his providence as well. You know, when my sister was about five years old, she downed an entire bottle of cowpaw, like medicine for kids. And so my mom, seeing that she felt a little bit tired, put her to bed. A few minutes after she'd put her down, a doctor who worshipped at our church was just driving by our house. And for no reason whatsoever, she decided to see how we were all doing. And she knocked on the door and she said, oh, hi, Jill, just wondering how you all are. And my mom said, oh, we're all okay, thanks. Yeah, Sean's just downed a whole bottle of cowpool, so I've just put her to bed. She bolted up the stairs. She grabbed her, threw her in the car, took her to A&E. They pumped her stomach and they saved her life. That's the providence of God. Another preacher that I like to read sometimes is surname rhymes with Lurgeon. <laughs> was uh, preaching one night at a church and this church had a balcony. And the church was packed out this night. And an hour or so after the service had finished, when everyone had left the building... The balcony collapsed. And if that had happened an hour or so before, dozens, perhaps hundreds, would have been killed. That's the providence of God. But there's a twist, isn't there, in God's providence here in Paul's life in Acts 23. Because the reason Paul wanted to get to Rome... And we've heard him say he wanted to get to Rome back in chapter 19. The reason he wanted to get to Rome is because Rome was the center of the world back then. It was like London. It was like New York or, or Paris or something like back then. And if he could preach the gospel in Rome, then the gospel would invade the world back then. But instead of going to Rome as a preacher, as someone put it, he, he went to Rome as a prisoner. And he was bound, but the gospel wasn't bound. Because you remember, this is what he said in Philippians chapter 1. He said to the church in Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. You see that, friend? God's providence isn't for our comfort. No, God's providence is for the maximum spread of the gospel and the glory of God in the world. And when that means that Paul had to be in chains, Paul was in chains. And when that meant that Paul had to be shipwrecked, Paul was shipwrecked. 
And when that meant that Paul had to be beheaded under Emperor Nero, Paul was beheaded under Emperor Nero. And Paul was immortal until God had finished with him. And so am I. And so are you. Because God is able to keep you. And he does it by his providence. And so shall we say tonight, friends, let's not despise these hard providences. Instead, let's recognize that they are the very means by which the gospel will spread all the more. And the glory of God be upheld all the more as well. Spurgeon said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. And if you all want an illustration of how that played out in his life, listen to this. He said, one morning I preached from the text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though I did not say so, yet I preached my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark. But I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness for which I condemned myself on the following Monday evening. A man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance. His hair seemed to stand upright and his eyes were ready to start from their sockets. He said to me after a little parleying, I never before in my life heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case. But on Sunday morning, you painted me to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. By God's grace, he said, I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty. But I could not have known if I had not been myself confined in the dungeon in which he lay. And he said, I tell you the story, brethren, because sometimes you may not understand your own experience and the perfect people may condemn you for having it. But what know they? of God's servants. So I want to close tonight by bringing the Lord's day to a full circle. Because again, we said, didn't we, this morning that amid all of the dangers and toils and snares, the glow of eternity is already on our faces. And God is able to keep you in the present to present us holy and blameless and above reproach that's what he's promised to do, and that's what he will do, because God is able to keep you. That's why Jude brought his epistle to a close when he said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Amen. Well, why don't we stand and sing a great hymn?